You are about to enter the Cyber PD Podcast, your podcast platform for cyber school professional development. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Cyber PD Podcast. With me this week is my co-host, Robin Hartman. Robin, do you want to tell our loyal listeners about the fantastic episode we have lined up for today? Thank you so much, John. Absolutely. On today's episode, we have Jesse Nicholas, who is a veteran high school teacher here at Agora. Jesse teaches world history and AP world history at the high school level. He has been trying some innovative techniques for improving student writing in his courses. And we asked him if he would be willing to share those strategies with all of you. What I love about Jesse's strategies is that they can be adapted at any grade level. So for anyone in the K-12 world out there, listen up. Jesse has some really great things to share with you. Jesse, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me on here. I, you know, I, I listen to a ton of podcasts all the time, so it's cool to actually be a guest on one. And uh, you know, I, I feel like you know, it's, it's always good to share things that, that, that work. And, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of things that work. And this is something that really has worked well for me the past uh, two years. So I'm very happy to be on here and, and uh, share these ideas. And we are very happy to have you on there. And and you mentioned that you are excited to share something that works. I, I know from a professional development that you did on this, that you did a differentiated supervision project where you tracked three students' progress after introducing some of the strategies that we're going to be discussing today. But before we get to the details of what you did, let's tell our our audience about the evidence that it does work. Uh, so what were the results of that project that you did a couple of years ago? Well, I think there's really two things that, you know, two really, you know, big accomplishments that I saw. One of them was just the nut, the percentage of completions of, of how many students are actually submitting assignments. And that's, you know, it's a challenge not only for cyber schools, but really for any schools. You know, the first step is how do I get my student to attempt the assignment? And, you know, I saw my percentages jump from, you know, it wasn't a huge jump. It went from like 50% to around 70%, but still, and you get a 20% jump like that. Um, it's a pretty big accomplishment. And I think it kind of just goes back to the fact that you know, a lot of these kids were lacking the basic skills to complete the assignments. And then with this, type of uh, scaffold of techniques it provides them you know a lot of those uh, those skills they need to, to start off it and uh, I saw that increase and you know more than anything from September until June the, just the writing overall became more sophisticated for the students who actually did complete um, these assignments and you know and of course participated in the live sessions as well I mean I tracked three students and the very first assignment I gave in the year was a discussion board and a couple of them, they were writing in incomplete sentences, um, real, just real simple sentence structure. By May and June, you know, they were writing in, uh, they were using blended quotes, and they were, you know, very, going into very detailed analysis of, of documents. And um, it was a huge jump, and uh, it was very, you know, very gratifying. You know, all, all the work that I put into it paid off. And, you know, we try so many different things and you know some stuff doesn't work that so was really you know just a really a good boost for my morale as well you know to really have something that i could kind of hang my hat on and you know even build even further from there from uh the project that i did uh did a year ago awesome thank you so much jesse so you did already touch upon this a little bit but let's go way back 
um, to why you decided to focus your differentiated supervision problem on writing. As a former, not so former ELA writing teacher, I know that there's a lot of struggles that we see in the elementary world with student writing. What are some of the things that you're seeing at the high school level that really kind of made you lead your focus to this project? I'm also a certified English teacher, and I did teach, you know, back in the day, one year of uh, 12th grade uh, English, which was, you know, very, a very good experience to have. And I think a lot of that helped me kind of, uh, you know, helped me develop strategies. But, um, you know, mainly I'm a, I've always been a, a social studies teacher. But, you know, what I, what I saw was, for the most part, students were making the same mistakes, whatever it might be in their writing, whether it might be grammar mistakes or, or just kind of writing informally, the biggest issue that I saw, they weren't improving. And that's, you know, that's the goal of education, no matter where you are in your writing is to improve. And, you know, they were starting off the year making mistakes and I was providing feedback and then, you know, before the project and then, you know, May and June rolled around. And unfortunately, I felt like they weren't learning from their mistakes. It's like they didn't make a lot of progress and really in any very many categories at all. And, and the other, you know, challenge is just getting students to write formally. I, I think sometimes we kind of overstate a little bit how writing translates across the subjects. I mean, it absolutely does. You know, you learn how to, you know, write uh, in a sentence. Of course, it's going to, you know, translate amongst many subjects. But, you know, every subject has a tone that you write in. Um, and every subject has writing techniques that are specific to that subject. Like, for example, in history, you know, we deal a lot in quotes. How do you incorporate other people's ideas into your work? And, um, you know, how do you use that to strengthen your ideas? And they were really not, know used to doing that and just how do you get a student who's really unfamiliar with, with those techniques you know from, from the ground floor how do you build that up so that, that was a big challenge uh, you know writing formally and uh and just improving you know just making whatever their issues were just making progress throughout the year and you know eliminating some of those, those mistakes they were making over and over again thank you i really appreciate your reminder that even if we are not specifically writing teachers we're all teaching writing it just might look a little bit different in all of the different subjects and i really appreciated that part of your presentation and yeah and i, I think um a lot of times um you know earlier when I, when I started teaching here i'd you know i of course had you know writing instruction in my classes but it was more of a thing where you know i tack it on the end of a lesson or you know maybe one day out of a month i would focus on it but if the goal, I mean, I think in any subject, it's not just to, to understand the content, but you got to communicate it as well. And, you know, you got to, you know, writing is, a, you know, a main form of communication. If you know something, uh, if you know a lot about history, but can't communicate it and can't communicate it formally, then, you know, it's not a lot of good to knowing it. So I, I think, it, you know, whatever subject you teach, it's equal, you know, knowing the content and being able to communicate it, uh, you know, formally. And, you know, we all have rules for our subjects. Like, this is, you know, this is the right way, accepted norms of how we need to, you know, communicate that. And it's very important for them to learn that, too. Absolutely. It's it's so important in, in any subject area from uh, from health and PE to ELA and everything in between that, that students are able to communicate what they know in, in a language that's acceptable and appropriate for that for that area. So so what you did to, to build your project had a lot to do with distributed practice. Before we get into what you did, I, I think our listeners need to have an understanding of what distributed practice is and how it relates to scaffolding writing. So could you tell us a little bit about that? 
So quite simply, distributed practice is, is practicing something over a long period of time. In this case, like a school year. And really scaffolding, if you kind of boil it down, scaffolding is a form of distributed practice because ideally, you know, like, for example, if you, if you apply just sports with, with distributed practice, if you're learning to play, you know, baseball, maybe you first learn how to grip the bat. And then the next step is you, you put the ball on a tee and you hit it off the tee and then you get rid of the tee and then someone pitches it to you. So you're, you're practicing something um, over a long period of time, but it's getting more difficult. You know, it's becoming more challenging. And same thing with scaffolding, where, you know, the idea behind it is that, you know, initially you give the students a lot of support, a lot of things integrated into the assessment, into the lesson where you're helping them get started. And then as the year goes on, you remove them, just kind of like, you know, taking training wheels away or, or taking the ball off the tee. And, and the ultimate goal is that they're able to do this on their own. And you're really just kind of externalizing the learning process. You know, you know, most, you know, all of us, we, you know, this stuff, we've internalized it. We know how to think, we know how to write, we know how to plan our writing. They don't, uh, they're not familiar with those kind of, those mental, you know, uh, steps that we go through automatically. So it's just kind of putting them out onto these assessments and letting them see them and, and you know, walking through them until they become habits for them. And, you know, and still they start to internalize them. And they don't need those supports anymore. So, but, you know, th that's really what distributed practice is. And uh, from all the, the research that I did, the bottom line is if, if you want some somebody to learn something long-term, whether it's a, a piece of content or just remembering something, whether it's a skill that you want them to have for life, it's important that they practice it over a longer period of time. You know, cramming for something over two days um, doesn't lead to long-term retention of skills or, or really of anything, of even remembering anything either. Yeah, I've I've heard it to I've heard it referred to as uh, spaced practice before, um, as well as distributed practice. So if if any of our listeners have heard that term, spaced practice, it's it's pretty much the same idea where where you incorporate it over time, and it is as you said, Jesse, the exact opposite of cramming for a test the night before. Um, I know I've been guilty of that. I can't even remember what test it was that I was studying for up until let alone any of the material that was on the test like probably most of our listeners could say that too like you remember cramming in college but you can't remember even what that test was for that you were cramming for uh but those those skills that you do over develop over time those are the ones that that stick with you so um so yeah great point Thank you. I do remember always cramming for history. I don't know the subject, this topic, but I knew it was always history. And there's actually a lot of research to support, like, you know, it, cramming does have short-term benefits. Like, you know, a lot of the studies I read in, in the book, uh, Learning and Memory by John R. Anderson, he did a ton of studies and a lot of groups were, you know, they, they were, you know, given a, a sheet of Spanish words and their definitions, and uh, they had to study them and then, you know, take a test on them. And the group that studied eight times in a row in one day and then took the test the next day, you know, they performed well right away. Uh, the group that, that you know, studied it once and took it the next day, initially, they didn't do that well on it, as opposed to the cramming group. But when they kept it, you know, that, that second group who, uh, you know, they would, they would wait a week, they studied again, wait another week, you know, and take the test again. And, you know, he still kept giving that same test to the cramming group. And it, it turned out, you know, as, as time goes on, the, the cramming group, they're forgetting everything. They're, you know, their retention is going out the window, whereas the, um, the group that had the practice distributed over a longer period of time, they're retaining all those, those definitions. So, yeah, even though 
you know, sometimes they have a short-term benefit to, to cram. The goal with long-term retention and long-term skill retention, that's not the best way to go about things. And unfortunately, you know, um, in history, like you mentioned, Robin, uh, the way a lot of units are, are set up, it's like, all right, we're on, you know, Roman Empire. And then, you know, we're moving on to, uh, uh, you know, the Middle Ages. And it's kind of like you have these defined units. And we don't really go back, you know, the only time we go back and, you know, re- reference that, you know, what we learned previous is on the midterm, like in preparation for the midterm. So just kind of changing, you know, the really changed my way of thinking in terms of if what I really want them to learn, it has to be no matter if it's content or writing, it's got to be practiced throughout the year. You can't just, you know, a, a couple interactions with it and then, you know, all right, we'll see it again on the midterm. That's not going to work if you want them to remember it long term. Thank you so much. You kind of just answered my next question. Um, you brought up John Anderson and in your presentation, you call that progression of learning um, the Anderson curve. And what I found really fascinating about that is um, the idea of we have to move teachers away from teaching in isolation. You know, the standards, the content, it needs to be changed. We need to continue to progress as well. So if you were to talk to anyone here at, at Agora from K to 12, you know, what do you think is the biggest takeaway from that Anderson curve that all of the teachers here at Agora really need to know and remember so that they can apply it in their own classrooms. I, I think the biggest thing is just the number. Um, and he doesn't go out in the book and, and say, you know, give a number about how many interactions are needed for like, you know, long-term retention or, or skill development. But, you know, most a lot of people who have read the book have come, it's around 26 interactions that if, if a person has 26 interactions with, with something at increasing levels of difficulty, that is really the, the key number. If someone wants to remember something long-term or some skill wants to be, you know, kept long-term. And just, you know, looking back at my content, I'm looking at a lot of things I'm teaching and, you know, we, I might, you know, teach something in a class one day, like maybe you know, uh, I'll mention Emperor Constantine, for example, you know, we'll, we'll learn about him one day in class and maybe it'll be an activity in class. Maybe that's two interactions. Maybe they'll see, you know, a question related to him on a checkpoint and then a quiz. So maybe it's four interactions. You see him again on a test, um, you know, different questions. There's a fifth interaction. And then maybe he's there again on the midterm. That's six. That's far from 26 interactions. And, you know, it's not just doing the same thing 26 times. It's not like, hey, you know, asking, hey, who's Emperor Constantine's, you know, 26 times in a row. It's not like that. But maybe the first time it's, you know, identifying him, uh, then using, you know, um, him in a sentence and then, you know, comparing him to a, a different uh, individual in history and then, you know, incorporating him into a longer term writing assignment. Whatever it might be, the key is that your uh, whatever that interaction is, it's got to become, you know, more difficult as, as the year goes on. Because if not, then um, again, if you just do the same thing over and over again, there's not much benefit to that. And it's not like you have to stop at 26 either. But a lot of the research shows that after 26 interactions, the, the gains are minimal. Um, and not everybody can, you know, show mastery of everything 100% of the time. So, um, but that's really the key. It's just whatever you want your kids to know, your students to know, look back at your, your content. Are you, you know, are you at least having them interact with it? Not just on the assessments, you know, interactions count for live session too. Are you close to 26? If they're not remembering what you learned, you know, earlier in the year, maybe it's because they're just not interacting with it enough and not at um, increased difficulty level. So that, that's what I feel like uh, my issue mainly was, you know, before I really started incorporating uh, distributed practice into the class. 
All right. So so we talked a lot about the the theory behind this, the the evidence behind this, what happened. Uh, so, so I think our listeners are convinced. Yes, this is a good thing to do. Uh, so now that now that we've convinced everybody who's listening, this is a good thing to do. Let's get into the details. What is it that you did? What scaffolding techniques did you use? How were you incorporating the distributed practice specifically into that area of writing that, that led to these improvements for these, the students? It was basically a, a three-step process for me. Um, I started out with sentence starters. And if you're not familiar with, with what they are, it's basically, if you have a question, like for example, if the question was, how does Paul S. Martin explain the extinction of large animals. That was a question in one of my earlier um, assignments. Well, right below that question, I would have a a starter, how you can start your answer off. I'm not giving them the answer, but it's, it's a way to start you know, your response off. And it would say something like, um, remember to respond by including the question in your response like this. Paul S. Martin explains that large animals went extinct because, and then, you know, they can just kind of use that starter and then finish off the rest of the sentence. And, you know, it might seem kind of like rudimentary, you know, including that in there, but I feel like so many of these kids, like a lot of these habits that they, they've developed over time, these bad habits, I mean, th th they're texting all the time. Um, they're, they're writing, you know, in the live session, incomplete sentences and Practice makes permanent. For I know a lot of these kids for years have been writing like that, so it's trying to get them to reverse that bad habit. And you know, many you know, so many assignments I, I had in the the beginning part of the year, I had these sentence starters where they were just you know getting used to including the question as part of their response, writing in a complete sentence because actually you know the the beginning part of writing is you know <laughs> writing in a full sentence and you know. Believe it or not, you, you would you would you know you wouldn't believe how many students just struggle with that part alone. So that was the beginning part, and again, I saw a lot of great results with that. Um, and, and the three students that I tracked by around, I would say, I don't know, about like um, the beginning of the second semester, they didn't even need that scaffolding anymore. They didn't need those sentence starters anymore. They were all they practiced so many times that you know they were you know already doing that, which is was the goal to begin with. And again, I, I don't, I'm not. I'm not saying that I alone was responsible for that. I'm sure, you know, they were doing it in uh, their other classes as well. But, you know, that that's, that was my first step was those sentence starters. And, you know, it's real easy to put them um, below each question on a, on a written assessment that they, you know, upload to those folders. And, um, you know, as time went on, some students I, you know, that mastered it, I got rid of the scaffold and I kept it for other ones who I noticed, you know, continue to, to make those same mistakes. So, you know, you, you can adjust it, uh, you know, you can differentiate it however you need it. Um, if certain groups of students, you know, aren't mastering that, well then you kind of keep that in there for them. But that was step one was the sentence starters. Step two was the constructive response activities, which, you know, we've that we've been using, uh, Robert mentioned it earlier, you know, it was introduced a couple of years ago, the R-A-C-E-S strategy, where they're restating the question, they're answering it, they're then citing the evidence, explaining how the evidence supports the answer, and then summarizing it at the end. And there's all different versions of that, but the main goal of that is just kind of break it down step by step, um, you know, writing in a paragraph, writing a, a longer response in a paragraph. And uh, that was step two. And I know, you know, a lot of, you know, some teachers like aren't weren't like big fans of that strategy because it didn't really match their subject. But, you know, what I included in there on top of just those R-A-C-E-F steps was, you know, on the the on the third step, I put, hey, 
Look at page four for suggestions to introduce quotes. That step where they're citing evidence. On the bottom of that paper, I had a bunch of examples as to how you can, you know, introduce a quote like uh, in Smith's view, etc. Smith writes, comma, because I, I kind of tailored it to what I needed because that was something that a lot of kids in, uh, you know, writing for social studies struggled with was incorporating quotes in, in their in their writing. Uh, they're not used to that. You know, they're not. We, we use it a lot. It's a technique we use a lot in writing in um, social studies writing that they may not use as much in, say, English or or, or another class like that. Um, it's, it's essential to writing in history. And, you know, that constant practice, a lot of students, you know, really got sophisticated in, in the way that they incorporated quotes as the year went on. I mean, by May and June, two of the students that I wrote, they're writing in blended quotes and they're, you know, they're quoting multiple sources and varying the ways that they introduce them. So that went a long way. That was kind of step two with that scaffolded constructive response uh, technique. And then the final step was the writing rubric, what was a differentiated writing rubric. And, you know, the one thing that I hear a lot of um, of Agora teachers mention is that, you know, I, I, uh, I'm giving so much feedback to these kids, but they're not reading it. You know, you look, sometimes you log in as a student and, you know, you see that they didn't look at, at your feedback and it's, you know, it's kind of demoralizing. Well, I had to figure out a way, how can I, how can I make that feedback vital to, you know, the, the process, the writing process uh, as to what they're doing and vital to their grade as well. So what I did was I made up a rubric where basically in the first step of it, they had to, uh, it, was a, it was like a, a, a 30 point rubric and it, it was based on organization, document analysis, citing evidence. And, you know, it was, you know, it was tiered. And you can look at all these um, documents that uh, Katie pushed out. But the bottom line was they were, you know, they were graded on those three criteria, organization, document analysis, citing evidence. It was on, on a 10 point scale for the rough draft. They only got it, you know, you, you got the credit if you attempted to do it. Because, again, it's not a finished product. They're, you know, it's not meant for a grade. But as long as you attempted those three things that we practiced throughout the year, you know, they were fine. In the final three categories, they were then given three revisions. Um, and these revisions ranged from anything from, you know, not, cap hey, hey, you got to go back and capitalize the first, you know, word of your sentences. Or, hey, you, you got to go back and for like more advanced writers, you need to pull in different forms of evidence or, or different points of view in your analysis. So the, the you know, the revisions range, you know, are all over the map, depending on where they were as writers. And for the final draft, again, they, part of their grade was dependent on, hey, did you successfully make the revision I included in the feedback for the rough draft? So now, you know, that feedback becomes a vital part of their overall grade and their performance. And again, why I did that was because, you know, we just want them to improve. That's the goal. Wherever you are as a writer to improve. And, you know, by having that, that differentiated writing rubric, you know, I, I it kind of forced them to go back and look at that feedback and, you know, and make those corrections and make that improvement that, uh, you know, that we want to see them make. All right. So there was a lot there. And I just want to uh, to reiterate for our listeners here. So they get it a second time. Now, if they get it 24 more times, like listen to this a, a few times, <laughs> then they'll get it right. Uh, but uh, the step one was was sentence starters, just a very simple sentence starter for for all of this, all of the students. Step two was a, a formal process whereby they could write a paragraph. So the strategy that you used was the races strategy. So you took it from that sentence with that nice sentence starter now up to a paragraph with the races strategy 
And step three was a differentiated rubric, both for the well, well, you had a rubric for the uh, for the rough draft and then the rubric that you used for the final draft took into account the feedback that you gave on the rough draft. So it was differentiated for that final draft. So those were the three steps sentence starters, constructed responses and differentiated writing rubric. That's your third time getting it. <laughs> so you, uh, but we're cramming it in. We're not distributing this, this over uh, over uh, different different areas. So so don't get me wrong. That doesn't really count as your three. You need uh, you need 26 over a, a broad period of time. But um, but that was great. 20, 25 more times, and, you know, just <laughs> explain it in different ways, right? And then we'll, we'll all really know it long term. That'd be great. <laughs> That was awesome. So thank you so much, Jesse. And I really do appreciate it. It was an eye opener for me to hear you talk about the differentiation of the rubric, because it really is essential for us to remember that um, the rough draft is not the final copy. And so being graded on the rough draft is, is, is really just not fair. And I think it could really kind of lead our, our kids to, you know, some of our kids at least to, to really be discouraged with the writing process when they feel like they're being you know, essentially graded on every piece. When that rough draft, most people are not graded on their rough draft. No novelist is graded on their, you know, their rough draft before it becomes an actual novel. So I think that's a really important uh, thing that we need our writing teachers to remember too, even at the little grades, that that process needs to be um, appreciated, but not necessarily graded as the final step. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, yeah, it, it's kind of crazy to, to see like how many students don't even understand the concept of a rough draft. Like I, I had a number of kids say, "Hey, can I submit the rough draft and the final draft at the same time?" Like, no, no, that's not the point of this. Like, you know, it's to learn, for, you know, to improve, to make those revisions to improve for the, you know, your your final draft. Awesome, thank you so much, Jesse. We're coming to the end of our um, conversation with you, and you've really given me a lot of ideas to take back to the K to five world. Do you have any other thoughts that you want to leave our readers with? in um, our conversation about really kind of getting our kids to write well? Well, I think any, I mean, I, I think the thing that I always think about, in, you know, teaching cyber education, you know, this has only been around for like 20 years, right? You know, as cyber educators, we've only been, you know, doing this for about 20 years or so. And, you know, traditional public schools, they've got plenty of writing strategies and lessons they can look back on that apply well to, the, you know, the brick and mortar school. But, you know, we're all pioneers here in a way. We're all, you know, we're trying to just find things that work. So I, I guess my uh, my final thoughts would be just, you know, keep searching. You know, eventually things are, you're going to hit on something that works. And this really worked for me. It can, it can get discouraging a lot of times when, you know, you try these techniques and they don't work. But, uh, again, we're, we're, we don't have a giant library of, you know, strategies that we know work in cyber education. So I think, you know, we're all, you know, on that trail to, you know, discovering you think this could be go. So I would say, you know, don't, keep that grit, right? You know, keep that that positive mindset because something's gonna, you know, you're gonna hit on something that works well, and you know, keep trying until you find it. Awesome! And, and Thank you so much. And I think that's a really powerful way to end to remind our teachers here: we are pioneers. This is new. I mean, 20 years sounds like a long time, but it really isn't in the world of education. And I think that's something that all of our teachers need to remember. And I think we're doing a pretty good job of it. Thanks, Jesse. And when you find those strategies that work, share them with us. Uh, uh, Robin and I would love hearing from them. Katie and Steve, uh, uh, the, the other hosts of the Cyber 
PD podcast. They would also love to hear about them. So uh, share those ideas with us. We would love to have have you on the episode if you've got those those great ideas. But that will do it for this week's episode of the Cyber PD podcast. We do want to thank Jesse Nicholas for uh, joining us today, and thanks to you, all of our loyal listeners. Uh, if you haven't done so yet, you have a homework assignment. You need to subscribe through your favorite podcatcher so you don't miss a single episode of the podcast. And also, uh, make sure to rate the show and um, share it on social media as well. Um, But that'll do it. Until next time, keep learning. Thanks for listening to the Cyber PD Podcast. Tune in next time for more Cyber School Professional Development.